You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Amen. Okay, let's read the, uh, the first six verses this morning. It says this. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look. Now, this is like Paul drawing the audience's eyes to himself. He said, look at me in the eye. I, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And here's what I love, just just on on a macro level, as we're jumping into our text this morning. What we're going to notice is that in in this portion of the text, in, in this letter that Paul is writing, we will see a marked shift, a shift in, in the content of what Paul is writing for us. And that's because if, we can, if you'll just indulge me for a minute, essentially what we've seen thus far in the book of Galatians in the first two chapters is Paul affirming his authority, his leadership, that, that, that's something he's been given by God, so it's not something he's tried to take for himself, but as an apostle of Jesus, here's why we should listen to him. And chapters three and four have essentially been Paul's, Paul's argument, his, his, his theology, right? The, the body of this letter were those two chapters. And now here in chapter five, we'll see a very subtle shift into what is his conclusion from that body, what, what we do with this sort of new knowledge that we've been given in chapters three and four. But what I love is that because we see the shift in one singular text, we realize just how connected those two things are. You see, Paul doesn't divide his letter into a theology section and a Christian living section. That's something that we're tempted to do, but Paul would not have drawn much of a distinction between doctrine and practice, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, or theology and ethics. What we believe and how we live are inextricably linked. And so having argued his case for Christian faith as the sole basis of our justification in Christ, Paul seamlessly transitions into describing what Christian faith looks like in everyday life. And that's the transition that's unfolding here in verse 6 and that will carry us through the rest of Galatians. And so what we had in, in, in verses 2 through 5 are really just a summary of everything that we talked about last week. So we're going to pick up in verses 5 and 6, and that's where we'll spend the majority of our time from there on. Now, if you were here at the, at sort of closer to the beginning of this series, you would have heard uh, one of our church planting residents, Carlos, say these words that essentially summed up his entire sermon. He said, our identity informs our activity, that, that it's 
who we are that informs what we do. And that is essentially what Paul is bringing to a head here. Who we are determines what we do. And he's told us throughout the past couple of chapters that we're not slaves, but that we're free. That we're not slaves, but we're sons. And that we are sons of God through faith in Jesus. That if we are in Christ, we are God's redeemed children. And the metaphor extends perfectly because if we are God's redeemed children, then we will live the lives that he's raising us to live. That is our defining identity, our our anchor, and it will necessarily change what we do, how we live. So according to Paul's words here, if we want evidence in the here and now that our future hope as he says in verse, verse 5, this hope that we're eagerly waiting for, this hope of righteousness. If we want evidence in the here and now that that is secure, that that hope is secure, that it is waiting for us, that we can expect to lay hold of it in the time to come, then we should not look to the rules that we've followed or the rituals that we've performed. Rather, we should look to this new life, this defining, this controlling identity that we've been given in the Spirit. And what is that new life in the Spirit? Well, this is what Paul says in verse 5. Through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And so identity, right? We're a people of God's own possession. And because of that, we have an inheritance, a hope that's laid up for us. And by virtue of that faith, no distinguishing characteristic matters anymore. The only thing that matters, the only thing that counts in the economy of God's kingdom is faith, but a faith that works itself out through love. And so what we should have noticed in just these two verses, verses 5 and 6, is sort of this, uh, these three words that we often see together in the Bible. Faith, hope, and love. Right? That when we, when we place our faith in Jesus, we're given hope. Hope of right relationship with God. Hope of a future reality where we're made right. Where all that is broken and ill within us is made new in Jesus. We have this great hope. And that that hope, born of the faith, leads us to live lives that are characterized by love. And so... Faith is what matters more than anything else when it comes to our justification, when it comes to our standing with God. But when we talk about the Christian faith, we're not simply talking about making a credible profession of a certain set of doctrines or beliefs. Right? He doesn't say, because you have hope, or because you have faith, now you have hope. Now just relax and wait for the end of all time. Right? But that that faith leads to a life of faith working through love. A faith that repents, a faith that loves, a faith that welcomes, a faith that forgives, a faith that serves. Right, All of these characteristics of love become characteristic of us because of who we are. 
And so what we see here is not much different from what we've seen historically in all of, in all of the Bible. In that this is a phrase we've used time and time again at Sojourn. It's, it's always been God's intent from the beginning of time. It's always been God's intent to have for himself a people to whom he reveals himself and then through whom he wants to reveal himself to the world. And so what Paul has gone to great lengths to describe is how that's happened within history. See, God worked through the Jewish people. He did, but Paul isn't down on, on Jews. He's just down on people relying on religion for a relationship with God. God worked through the Jewish people to welcome the Gentiles into his family. He gave his love. God gave his love to a people. He gave his love to Israel. And he desired to see his love working through that people to welcome the outsider. Right? To draw people into relationship with himself. And now Paul says, rather than through Israel, now because of Jesus, God is working through both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians together in one unified church to welcome the entire world into his family. And so, brothers and sisters, like Israel before and like the church in Galatia in this text, God has given his love to us and he desires now to see his love working through us to welcome outsiders. So we are, by our nature, our new nature in Christ, recipients of God's love. That's who we are. We own God's love. And we own it in such a way that God would have us to now share it, to now disperse his love, as it were. And so in the conversation between doctrine and practice, really what we have is Christian living in its fullness. And to either degree that we overemphasize one or the other, we'll find ourselves unfaithful. Doctrine matters, and the way that doctrine is practiced matters to Paul. And this is why Paul is so upset by the Galatians' willingness to compromise, because it does two things. It puts a barrier between people and God's love that is an artificial barrier, right? There is nothing that we need to do or become before coming to Jesus so that we might experience the love of God. Not circumcision, not anything else. But then what it also does is it takes the eyes of the Christian off of their primary responsibility, which is to love others, and it focuses it on themselves and what they've been able to accomplish. Either this day, this past week, or this past year. And we're so worried about our Christian resume that we can't be free to just love people. And so it's a problem when we compromise on this gospel, because this is what we give up. We give up not only an identity, but we give up the right activity that's, that flows out of that identity. And that's why Paul 
uses the language that he does in verse 12, which we'll get to in just a second. So let's read, starting in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. It's not from God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now there's a lot going on in these verses. We have a ton of imagery that Paul uses. In verse 7, we're on a racetrack. In verse 8, we're in a courtroom. In verse 9, we're in a kitchen. In verse 10, we're back in the courtroom. And then in verse 12, Paul says something rather unsettling. And we don't really have time to to go through all these, so I want to focus on what I think is the heart of Paul's argument here, which is in verse 9. He says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What does Paul mean by that? Well, if you're baking a loaf of bread, leaven is what causes the bread to rise. But the thing with leaven is that you, you don't need a lot of it. Just a couple of grains of leaven and it will spread throughout the entire mixture such that all of the bread rises, the loaf rises. It works its way through the entire loaf. Now this leaven imagery would have been very meaningful for any Jews who were present hearing these words read or spoken. The Jewish people had been commanded by God to observe a feast called the Passover. It was a, it was a feast that um, remembered a, a particular time in, in Jewish history, in Israel's history, when they were enslaved um, underneath the rule of Egypt and the Egyptian pharaoh. Uh, they'd been taken in um, and had been forced to work as their slaves. And God, um, through m- uh, many circumstances, but mainly through the, the stories that we might be familiar with, with Moses, um, sets about setting his people free. He sets them free from Egypt uh, through a series of, of plagues that he puts upon the nation of Egypt such that eventually Pharaoh finally gives in and says, okay, I'll let your people go. Um, and God delivers them. God delivers them. And, and so this Passover feast was given to them. They were commanded to celebrate this Passover feast in celebration of that reality. Remember that God set you free. And it was during Passover that they were told to eat unleavened bread. That was part of the celebration. And so leaven during this time, during the time of Passover in the Jewish household was banned. You you were not allowed to have leaven. It was only unleavened bread. And now if you've ever baked unleavened bread, you know that it's flat. You know that it's very plain. There's no, no other really ingredients in it. It's not... It's not fancy at all, and this was supposed to recall for the Jews a, a, sense, of, a sense of humility, that, they're, that they shouldn't be puffed up, because it wasn't them who set themselves free from Egypt, it was their God who set them free from Egypt. 
And because there were no other ingredients added to its mixture, it was also a symbol of purity that I've, I've called you specifically as a people within this world to be mine. And because you are mine, you are different. You are pure. You are set aside for me. And so Paul is painting for them uh, a very obvious picture of what it means to compromise. He says, if you compromise on this seemingly small issue of circumcision, the error will quickly work its way through to everything else. And what you'll have is leavened bread instead of unleavened bread. What you will have is self-righteousness rather than the hope of righteousness that we have by faith through the Spirit. He's saying if you look to rules and rituals for your righteousness and right standing with God, rather than simply looking to Christ by faith, you will end up losing everything. And so this was not a minor mistake for Paul. And that's important to establish because what Paul says in verse 12 is is pretty shocking. Or what does he say in verse 12? He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. If you don't know what that word means, don't Google it. Just go to dictionary.com and then type it in. Now, to be fair, the English translation of this verse is a bit more graphic than the original Greek, but it does capture Paul's irony and sarcasm, right? He says, okay, this, so the false teachers want, want to circumcise you, do they? Well, why stop there? Why not? Why not cut themselves off completely? And the Bible, if you're, if you're familiar with it, um, has a lot of this language, this language of cutting off. Because that's partly what circumcision was intended to represent. Much like baptism, circumcision has layers of meaning. And the Jews were not only cleansed through their circumcision, they were also warned by God through their circumcision. Circumcision was a warning not to be cut off from Israel. It also pointed forward to Christ, who was himself cut off from God's blessing so that God's people could be saved. In Colossians chapter 2, we see an explicit reference to Jesus' death as a kind of circumcision, a cutting off. And so I do think there's a play on words that we can appreciate here, but Paul's broader meaning is very simple. He truly wants for these false teachers to stop bearing their poisonous fruit. He desires that they would be cut off and fruitless. And so it's quite clear again that Paul is not making a friendly argument here. He's not saying, well, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree with those guys. No, Paul was not afraid to be warm and affectionate, but here he demonstrates the courage and the boldness that is required to protect the people that he loved, namely the people of God, the the church of God, those who have been purchased by Jesus for God's glory. And so I think a lot of times, you know, we we as a generation are are pretty comfortable living in the gray, right? That's why we, we like that phrase, hey, you do you, man. You do you, and I'll do me. But 
This is, this is not a you-do-you moment for Paul. This is a, a thick black line in the sand that Paul says, if we cross this line, we give it all away. Give it all away. And I know that for, for some of us, that's, that's uncomfortable. But it's the reality of the Christian faith. It's the reality of walking with Christ. We cannot compromise on this issue. So Paul forbids depending upon circumcision rather than depending upon Christ alone. But he doesn't simply forbid. He also exhorts. He doesn't... He doesn't just tell them what they should not do. He tells them what they should do instead. And so that's why we're going to read verses 13 and 14. And this is what it says. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we have this continued language of, of freedom where we've been told that we're no, no longer slaves but we're sons and that because we're sons we're free and that, that we've been set free for freedom's sake and that we should stand firm and not submit to a yoke of slavery and that we've been called though to a particular kind of freedom. A kind of freedom that does not use freedom for its own good, for its own sake. And there's a couple different ways that we could think about this. In one sense, the people of God have been set free from the Jewish law so that the church can truly be diverse. We're set free from Judaism so that the gospel can reach the, na- reach the nations. We're set free from the law, and because of that, the church can now move freely from tribe to tribe, from nation to nation, from tongue to tongue. We're set free to fulfill Mankind's original purpose to to fill the earth with the glory of God. And so the issue in Galatia is important because requiring converts to become Jewish not only slowed down the mission of the church, it undermined the mission of the church. It attempted to create a homogenous people unified by their sameness, but God wants a diverse people unified despite their differences. In another sense, the people of God have been set free because their deepest need has already been met. Thanks to Jesus, our most fundamental need, the need to be saved from ourselves and from our sin, has been met. And so we have this this freedom from God that we've given, freedom to be who we are and freedom to be this new person who is no longer sinful but has been made righteous by Jesus. The question then becomes, how should we use that freedom? And this is an important question because I, I think as Americans, we have always been enamored with this idea of freedom. But freedom in our society has come to mean something entirely different than what Paul is putting before us in this text. 
You see, freedom in our society has come to mean freedom from everything. We are to fight for freedom, not necessarily so that we can use our freedom for good. We want freedom for its own sake. We want freedom without limits. We want freedom to define ourselves, which is self-idolatry. We want freedom from judgment, no matter what we do. We want freedom to achieve our dreams, even at the expense of others. We want freedom to act without consequences. But the reality is that freedom only works if we have rules. And some of us go, what? That sounds like the opposite. Well, let's think about it. What if after winning the Revolutionary War, we had never sat down to ratify the United States Constitution? What if after winning our freedom, we, institute, we never instituted rules? What if after winning our freedom, the governing authorities gave way to anarchy? That would have been a terrible use of freedom. It would not have been a freedom worth having, and we would have been a fundamentally different nation. And arguably, we, we would not have made it this far if that had been the case. Think of it this way, when a man is released from prison, we say that he is free. But we don't mean that he is free to do whatever he pleases. He's no longer a captive, but he is still subject to the governing authorities. So the only freedom worth having is a limited freedom. The only freedom worth having is a freedom subject to authority. And the wonderful part of that reality is that for those of us who are Christians in the room this morning, Christ has made us free, but he has not set us free in a world that is absent of order, absent of rules, absent of an ethic or a morality. He's made us free and he's made us free to live in his kingdom for which he is the king. And we are free so long as we cling to him who is our freedom. We are free so long as we obey him who is our freedom. And so here's the thing. If you hear the word obedience in relation to Christ or to God and you think, that doesn't sound like freedom, that's because your definition of freedom is one that you have accepted from our society. Brothers and sisters, this is the only true type of freedom. It's the only true freedom because it's the only freedom in which we can be set free from the tyranny of sin. It's the only freedom in which we can be set free from the tyranny of our own flesh, where we are free to live the limited, created lives that we were meant to live. We were made to be limited. And I know that that's foreign to us. And that's obvious because we spend so much of our lives trying to be what, what we can't be. Omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent in all places, and all-powerful, 
omnipotent, omnipotent. And yet again, in Christ, we have the freedom to allow Him to be that for us and to live into who we actually are, which is limited created beings created for the glory of God and to experience the love of God so that we might distribute that love to the rest of the earth. And so we're free. We're free to be who we're made to be. And we're free to do so in submission to a creator who not only knows better than we do, but who loves us. And so Paul's gospel in Galatians and his definition of freedom in it does not free us from the need to obey God. And there's been a lot of debates around the book of Galatians, right? Galatians has typically been used as an argument to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. And yet it's clear, even from Galatians itself, that that's not the case. That there is obligation for the Christian. That there is duty that is attached to the Christian life. That there is an ethic, a practice of Christian living that matters. And that our freedom must never come unhinged from that morality. Or as verse 13 says, our freedom must never be used as an opportunity for our flesh. But rather it should be used through love to serve one another. Freedom, brothers and sisters, is given to us for love. Which is why in verse 14, Paul sums this whole section up with, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is why I love, what we see here again is not the the discarding of the law, but rather the exceeding of the law by, by God's people in Jesus. Because not only should we not sleep with our neighbor's wife, but we should serve them Right? We should go beyond not doing bad things to them and we, and we should proceed and exceed on to doing good things on their behalf. So brothers and sisters, we are to use our freedom to obey our God by loving our neighbor. If you aren't listening to anything else throughout the whole sermon, just take that one sentence with you. We are to use our freedom that we've been given graciously in Christ to obey our God by loving our neighbor. And brothers and sisters, we've prayed for revival for almost a year now. And I believe that God is giving us an opportunity to see that happen if we'll obey him. If we'll allow God to work through his spirit such that our faith in Jesus works through love. This city can and it will change by God's grace. But it's going to require of us some things that are awkward and that are uncomfortable and we'll talk about those the next two weeks. But family, in Houston right now, the opportunities have never been more visible. The opportunities have never been more easy to lay hold of. The opportunities to allow our faith in Jesus 
to work itself out through love have never been more obvious in our city than in the aftermath of, of the disaster of a few weeks ago. In the aftermath of a catastrophe like Harvey, even the most individualistic people value community. My guess is, if you were in Houston or have been in Houston for the past several weeks, you know your neighbors better than you did before Harvey. And so let's use that to bring relationship and reconciliation to our city because Houston right now is fertile soil for friendship and love and the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as the people that God has given himself to, may we now also be the people that God gives himself through to our city. Let's serve the people of Houston and then let's keep meeting here next week to commune with God, to commune with one another, and to receive encouragement, exhortation, and all of the energy and nourishment that we need to do it again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, Again, God, grateful to be gathered together. And grateful, Father, that you have set us free. And Lord, that you have shown us how that freedom is to be used, how that freedom is to be directed, and that it's to to be directed, Lord, toward the good of our neighbors. Our neighbors within our church family, our neighbors outside of our church family, such that this earth, this planet, God, might be filled with your glory as we love people in Jesus' name. And so, Lord, we ask that you would make us that people. We ask, Lord, that you would provide for us everything that we need to obey you, to walk in a way that speaks of your kindness and your mercy and your grace and your glory, God. And, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, we we are excited to know that you are a God who provides, a God who sustains. In your broken body and in your shed blood, you have provided for us all that we need. All that we need to be sustained in the good work that is before us. So Lord, we thank you. We're grateful to you for all good things. In Jesus' name, amen.